This week was Martin Luther King Jr. week, or we celebrated his day on Monday anyway. And, you know, it's one of those holidays that I think America has a lot of growing into yet to do. Because it comes along and it's sort of like a day off. And then the thing that follows that for some is, but why Martin Luther King Jr.? Or for others, it's, um, he's a great guy, but I, I don't know why we have a holiday. Or for still others, uh, it's just one of those things that we know banks and post offices are closed, but uh, we still work anyway. But I was uh, listening this week on radio and TV to a few of the words Dr. King spoke and reminded of his I Have a Dream speech, August 28, 1963, March on Washington. And I heard something much, much, much more than what... The culture buzzes around me on this day. I heard a word of prophetic truth. And next week we're going to talk about how to recognize that and the importance of that in our lives and in our community today. But it also reminded me that there is not just a dream that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gets to have. There is a dream that each of us get to have. There, and there are dreams that God dreams for us, with us, about us. I mean, think about Scripture just briefly. Old Testament particularly. Let's do the quick survey together. Let's, let's do that. We come to Genesis, and the dream is evidenced in the way things are put together, God and man together in a garden. But the dream gets modified when sin enters the world, and the modification is, you will have a descendant, Eve, who will crush the serpent's head. That's the dream. That is the dream I have for you and that is the dream I have for humanity that once again, humankind and I will be face to face. We will be together again in a garden. We read on. And the dream moves to Noah. It's a dream of apocalyptic import of destruction. A dream of water, lots of water. Any of you dreamed of lots of water lately? I heard it pounding on my roof so loud this week I thought I had a tin roof for a while. Really coming down. The dream was to build a boat. The instruction was to build a boat. God's dream for Noah was that he would be the one to build it and that he and his family and all who would listen to the warning God was giving would live. That they would enter the boat and survive the floodwaters. 
The dream was that there would be a people willing to hear God's voice and to do what God was asking them to do. And only eight made it. But God had a dream for Noah and his family and the people that he spoke to. God had a dream for Abraham. Or Abraham had uh, ate much too much goat meat too late at night or something. But as he lay there, he could hear God speaking. And the dreams that God gave him would seem absurd, I suppose, to us. Here is a man with no children, but he's going to be the father of a great nation. And as if that weren't bad enough, the answer would come at 100 years of age. A son named Laughter. God's great joke, Isaac. Wes shared with me a book by a man named Buchner who writes very, very, very candidly and cleverly and humorously about Abraham. He says, God gave him a son at a hundred. He says, after the experience on the mountain with Isaac, he not only dreamed terrible dreams, but he and Isaac were never close again after that. I don't know if that part was part of God's dream, but you read these these stories and it's amazing. God promised Abraham a land. He promised to make his descendants as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. Isaac and Jacob received the promise as well. Jacob dreamed angels bridging heaven and earth, climbing and descending a ladder. Heaven opened. He had a dream. And at the end of that dream, he wrestled with God and was lame come morning, as we all would be, touched by such power, reminded of our frailty. Wow, there are so many more. I skipped over one, Enoch. God had a dream for Enoch. There's not much communication on it except that Enoch was no more and went to be with God. The dream for Enoch was that he would not see death but would live with God for eternity. We get past Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to stories of Joseph. The youngest No, excuse me, the oldest child of the favorite wife, but not the oldest child, and not the oldest child of the first wife. He was arrogant in his dreaming. He dreamed that the sun, the moon, and the stars bowed down to him, and then he dreamed that he was out in the field harvesting Grain and all the sheaves of grain bowed down to his sheaf of grain. And not only was he arrogant, he was foolish enough to tell this dream to his parents and his brothers. What foolishness. I can hear 
Jacob chuckling now. Oh, so you think that I'm going to bow down to you? Interesting. I can hear the older brothers. This has just gone too far. But God had a dream for Joseph and for his family. And Joseph's dreaming netted him captivity. Amalekite traders took him to Egypt and sold him as a slave and he ended up in the captain of the guard's house, Potiphar's house. And his life would seem a nightmare, not a dream in many ways to us. Falsely accused, he ends up in prison where there's more dreaming. And the future is revealed to a cup bearer and to a baker. The king's birthday is coming and he's going to restore one and hang the other. And Joseph interprets the dream and it is forgotten. And while Joseph can minister where he is, where he, while he can fulfill God's purposes for the time being, he's not in a position to do anything great. He can only be. And the dream comes to the greatest in the land, Pharaoh. His dream is a nightmare. His dream is that there are seven skinny, bony, emaciated, ugly, withering cows who rise up and eat, cannibalize seven fat, cud-chewing, bright-eyed, luxuriously coated cows full of milk. And he's very disturbed. He's very, very, very disturbed. And conveniently enough, the Butler, who's been restored, remembers Joseph now several more years in prison and mentions him to Pharaoh and Joseph is brought to Pharaoh and Pharaoh repeats the dream and Joseph lays out God's dream for Egypt. You see, through Egypt, God is going to save his people from starvation and death. Through Egypt, God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham, his promise to Isaac, his promise to Jacob, his dream that a people will arise that will know the Lord. Egypt is a very fertile country in this time. And seven years of abundant crops will be stored up to be consumed during seven years of famine. And something happens beyond Joseph's wildest dreams. He's made second in the kingdom and put in charge of the project. And his earlier dreams are fulfilled as the famine grows throughout the land and threatens those living in the land of Canaan. Immigration takes place. People come from all over because they've heard there's food in Egypt. Jacob and his sons make their way eventually to Egypt. And they bow, not recognizing Joseph, who is second only to Pharaoh. When revealed, 
Joseph has God's spirit because he says, you know, it is not mine to take vengeance. God has done this that all of us might live. God has done this that we might survive another day and might fulfill his purpose. And Joseph has two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his inheritance. Oh, and the dreams continue. Moses, Moses, called by God from a burning bush, a bush burning but not being consumed. Shoes must come off. He's on holy ground. And he listens and he argues. Just like you. Just like me. But but, but Lord, we say, just like Moses. And God's dream for Moses was not just that Moses would lead a people. His dream was that a people would be led again out of Egypt. He had used Egypt to save a people. Now Egypt was killing a people, oppressing a people, driving down a people. Now he would set a people free to worship him in freedom, in spirit, in truth. Moses would set God's people free. It was to be a very simple operation. He had a staff and he had his brother. And his brother had a staff. Would you care to approach the king of Egypt and demand the freedom of a slave race with those tools in your hands? But as the song says, with the rod of God, you can do anything. Part the sea. Strike a rock and have water come forth. With the rod of God, you can set a people free. Dream. A dream was sort of perverted. It, it came to be sort of a nightmare. Forty years of wandering. Lots of death in the desert. Very few able to maintain their faith and their focus on God. But he would bring them through. And in Joshua and Caleb and the judges that would ensue, the land would be claimed and occupied. This land that flowed with milk and honey. This Canaan's land, this place where the city of Zion would be built. This place that prefigures the city of Zion in which we will live. In the land flowing with milk and honey. God's dream for you and for me. That we would be free and that we would worship and that we would enjoy all the blessings of the promised land. Well, people being who they are, 
the dream took one step forward and two backwards, didn't it? How easily we forget the promise of God. How easily we forget His provision. How easily we forget His word. Both His promise and His warning. Once established, Israel would have hard times. Israel would become unfaithful and fall into patterns of idolatry. Israel would forget the promises. Israel would forget its God. And judge after judge and messenger after messenger, prophet upon prophet, was sent to speak again the dream of God for a people and to warn them. Some of those prophets were challenged, some killed. Some of those prophets wrote the heart of God as God mourns for what is going to happen to his people. Inevitably, unless they turn from the path they are on and go a new direction. And what do we call that turning? Repentance. Unless they come again to God, return again to God until they fulfill that part of God's dream for them, that they have their face toward God. Where is your face today? Where is your faith today? In whom do you hope today? What promises do you hold to today? What vision do you see God having for you today? Israel and Judah would eventually fall and scatter to the winds. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Many of these prophets would dream dreams, God's dreams for a people. Rome occupies the land, but there's a preacher in the desert, a preacher who has a vision and a dream for God's people. And he just says it straightforward time and time again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. When John sees Jesus, he knows who he is. Behold, say it with me, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is one whose shoe I'm not worthy to tie. John was full of vision. Wasn't without his doubts. He sent disciples to find out what Jesus was really about and to gain assurance because he may not have fully understood the type of kingdom Jesus came to bring. But Jesus assures him, take note of what you've seen, John. And what are the things that he says? The lame walk. The blind see. The dead are raised to life. The deaf they hear. Go and tell this 
to John. Jesus would dream dreams and see visions. He would weep for Jerusalem as he entered the city on Palm Sunday, a week before his crucifixion. They crowned him king one day and crucified him the next. He would see the destruction that was coming, the burning of the temple. The people starved. And he would prophesy. The darkest of things. God's dream for a people was that they would hear and that they would listen and that they would know when to leave and when to escape Jerusalem. And by extension that they would listen now and listen for the signs and know that he is about to come. Jesus would have dreams. Even as he's dying, he would turn to one and say, I tell you today, you'll be with me. We're dying now, but we'll be together one day in paradise. Jesus would dream the dream. He knew even in his dying hour what his purpose was and what he wanted for a world. And when his flesh cried out, he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Take this cup, if at all possible, from me. Disciples would gather in an upper room in grief, lost, totally unclear on what they were to do, and they would encourage one another and pray. And they started to remember the words of Jesus. And they started to rebuild. But Jesus would appear to them. And the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And they would begin to preach in Jerusalem and the outlying areas. And as churches formed, eventually they would write letters. John the Revelator being one of them. Who in his old age writes Revelation. He had a dream. He had a vision. He knew what God wanted him to be about and he saw a future for God's people. Paul had a dream. It was to destroy every follower of the way he could. To rid Judaism of this heretical sect known as Christianity. To make the world safe for true believers in orthodoxy and faith once again. And his zeal burned hot. But he saw heaven opened as Stephen died. And on the road to Damascus, he had a vision of Jesus. And he saw that the way of the Christ was not about the way of killing and destruction. It was the way of God. It was the path of sacrifice. 
was the place of giving. And Paul became perhaps the greatest of our New Testament contributors. What is God's dream for you today? When we hear this entire sort of arching history of God's dream for people and what he's shared with people, what is it that he wants for you today? What is it that he wants for our community, our church? Tonight we have a church and business meeting and it's sure it's a lot of reports and there's some actual business involved there with budgets, but you know a church budget is never about spending money, it's about facilitating ministry. It is about funding the work of God in Santa Clarita. And what is that work to be? Where is the vision or the dreaming that God has for us as his people? How about the community at large? This great state of California. This incredible land, the U.S. of A. What is his dream for us as citizens of a very diverse world that is increasingly connected and small. Are we open? Can we hear? Are we willing to listen to that dream, that prophetic vision, that word of God to us? That everyone is welcome in his house? There is um, a lot to be found in the works of Dr. King. But I'm going to read a few pages from that speech I mentioned earlier. I am not unmindful that some of you have come out of here excuse me, have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells and some of you have come from areas where your quest, quest for freedom left you battered by storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with that, with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow the situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together 
at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley will be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be reviewed, revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope and this is the faith that I go back to the southwest with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that one day we will be free. And this will be the day. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill in Mississippi. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual. Free at last! Free at last, 
Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. I don't do that justice. It's available on YouTube for those of you who would like to hear the whole thing. But I think it's phenomenally powerful. Even these 35 years, 45 years later. That we should have a a dream, not only for who God wants us to be, but what God is calling us as a church to be and to stand for. That we should have a dream that speaks to a community, to a county, to a country, to a nation. One of the quotes from The Strength to Love, 1963, that King writes is this, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. Wow. And so the prophetic word lives on. We'll talk about that a lot more next week. What is God's dream for you is the question today. And I hope that you'll engage not only that question, but the larger question of what is his dream for us collectively. And I hope that that dream will include a way to impact our world. Because when we read of the dreams that God dreams for his people in the Old Testament and in the New, it moves us from diminishment to greatness. From starvation to plenty. From darkness to light. From sin and death to grace and eternal life. It moves us from injustice to justice. It moves us from the sort of selfish irrelevance of a life focused on conformity to the creative world in which we seek and vision to be God's solution. It's a lot. It's an awful lot to ask. But my prayer is today that we engage it together.